Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Lessons learned this hour from a tyrant's unspeakable war on Ukraine. And it's not over yet. It's a war about everything, it turns out. Barbarity on the ground and from the air over Ukraine. Nuclear confrontation looks all too possible. It's a test of democracy facing a dictator. It's a spectacle of sickening inhumanity out of control. So what are we absorbing? We're in collaboration here with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in a radio podcast series we're calling In Search of Monsters. We've got three guests this hour from the rising generation of scholars of international politics. Emma Ashford is a Russia watcher, Scottish-born, senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. She wrote the book forthcoming, Oil, the State, and War. Stephen Wertheim is an historian at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. His big book, Tomorrow the World, is about universal military supremacy for the United States. That was an idea born in the panic after Hitler rolled over France in the spring of 1940, and it's been a fact ever since. David Kang travels all over Asia and seems to study it inch by inch. He teaches Asia at the University of Southern California. Steve Wertheim, start where you will on what surprises you, what you're learning in this awful war. I suppose I've learned something surprising about Russia and something a bit surprising about us. The surprising piece about Russia is that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has taken an enormous gamble and it is, although he has acquired a risk appetite incrementally over the past decade or so, the risk he's taken, this plunge into an uncertain situation by mounting a full-scale invasion of Ukraine is greater than any risk he's taken before, certainly with respect to Russia's conduct in the world. And that's troubling when we look ahead, because particularly if Putin feels cornered, we have to ask ourselves, what more might he be willing to do to produce something that looks like a modicum of success for himself? Steve, take note of the fact that his tactics are familiar rubbalization, as in Grozny, as in Aleppo, defending the Syrian regime, and now in Ukraine, next door. Similar tactics, yes. We know that he is very willing to be brutal. That really wasn't a question. But what he's done with respect to Ukraine is apparently assume that Ukrainians, this whole country of about 40 million people, were crying out to be liberated by Russia which they obviously were not. He seems to have perhaps bought his own line that the country needed to be, quote-unquote, denazified from its, in fact, Jewish president. And so there's a degree of introversion that we're seeing in the regime that I think is notable, not to mention the risk he's taken with respect to the Western reaction, which has been severe, and I have to think more severe than he would have expected. And then, of course, there's something that's surprising me too about the United States, and that is the degree to which so many Americans of some influence 
view this conflict primarily in humanitarian terms and seek to at least entertain ideas like a no-fly zone uh, that I understand where it's coming from. They want to put a stop to the suffering and the illegal, immoral aggression that Russia is committing. But these actions would put us in something like World War III. Which, which actions do you mean, Steve? Well, we don't know exactly where the line is, right? And that's part of the difficulty of the situation. But um, there seems to be a nonstop discussion among certain members of Congress and in the media about a no-fly zone, which is a commitment to shoot Russian planes out of the sky. That, for example, would clearly be an act of war against Russia, and it would clearly be viewed by Russia as an act of war against it. And so the escalation risks, uh, I think, would be profound. And so what surprises me is the degree to which certain people seem to be willing to take serious, very serious risks of escalation with Russia in this situation as though the United States can treat Russia the way, unfortunately, it's treated other weaker actors over the course of the past three decades. I mean, Ashford, you're the Russia watcher here. We knew we were living in the age of the strongman, but we didn't have any idea about how far back to barbarism it could go. One man, apparently unchecked in a huge country. Explain it. I, I wish I could, but the fact is that this is this is not a, a change from the historical norm. Even in the last 30 years, we have seen leaders do the exact same thing. We saw Slobodan Milosevic do this to the to Albania and Kosovars in, in the Balkans in the 90s. We saw Bashar al-Assad in Syria do this to his own population with Vladimir Putin's help. So, you know, I think for me, what I see in this conflict is in, in some ways um, a, a surprise that it has taken a conflict of this magnitude on the European continent to bring home to people the limits of U.S. foreign policy in dealing with what is, uh, you know, the unfortunate arc of history, which is that things like this do happen. Leaders are often brutal. Wars happen. People get hurt. And that U.S. foreign policy can't necessarily solve all of those problems. And, and I think, you know, for 30 years, the U.S. has been able to, to sort of gloss over that problem because we were often faced with adversaries that were far weaker than us, right? We could start a no-fly zone over Libya and overthrow Muammar Gaddafi when he threatened to kill his own people. We could take action on the ground in Syria. We can't do that with Russia. It's a nuclear-armed superpower. And so what we're seeing today, I think, is you know a realization in Washington of, of the limits of what the U.S. can do around the world to actually deal with these kind of problems. You remind me of this big argument in the chattering class about great powers. Most familiarly, John Mearsheimer is insistent that great powers are a different order of beast. And the first rule with them is don't provoke the monster. As this war continues, though, I must say my reaction is Russia must be different. And Vladimir Putin must be different. There's a depth of anger, passion, recklessness, risk, absolute immunity to public opinion at home and in the world. Is that fair? 
One of the ways in which great powers are distinctive from other countries is simply that they have the, the military and financial capacity to act on some of these desires, right? Um, and so, yes, I think Vladimir Putin is driven to some extent by concerns about prestige, about Russian history. He clearly harbors a lot of grievances that are held over from the, the Soviet period. And what we're seeing is that, you know, that this is a country that has the capacity to act on that, and particularly, again, because it's this nuclear-armed superpower, that other countries are somewhat constrained in how they can respond to it. So, so again, I mean, I, I am not saying that John Mearsheimer is right in all things, because he's definitely not, but he is correct in, you know, the title of his book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. This is what it looks like in practice. Sometimes countries disagree on how the world should work, and force is how they hammer that out. David Kang, I'm interested in all this discussion about what is going to be different the next time as a result of the Ukraine lessons. Next time looks to be China. And the immediate question is, how will Xi Jinping react to the model of seizing Ukraine? I'm thinking, of course, of Taiwan. Yeah, you know, I have heard so much speculation, not only uh, during this war and then in the last year or so, for some reason, it has become baffling to me, uh, you know, an idea in D.C. that somehow China's about to invade Taiwan. It's just incredible to me what everyone is talking about, right? And that China right now is going to take all these lessons from Ukraine as if they were going to make a grab out of the blue. And that's not the case. I don't, I don't think that she is learning anything from this because there is one reason and one reason only that China has said it will use force on Taiwan. And it's not going to come out of the blue. China's not sitting there waiting to invade and looking for any opportunity. What they say is, if Taiwan declares formal independence, they will use force to make sure it remains Chinese. And Taiwan has shown zero inclination to do that. There is absolutely no way. We, we have to note the United States training Marines for what could be yes. a battle with China on Taiwan. Yes. The United States seems to be happy to think about the possibility. Yes, they do. And again, I understand that this is an entire sort of move over the last couple of years for, towards a China threat. I think this is badly misplaced. But the army is now trying to justify having more resources to fight China, right? So they're talking about things like Guam and everything. You know, the army where clearly it would be a maritime <laughs> battle with China, right? So that's an American thing. We can come back to that, right? But there's only one reason that, that China's going to use force, and that's if Taiwan declares independence. And Taiwan has no indication that they're planning to do that right now. And so all the talk about what's going to happen, uh, it's not like he's trying to weigh the costs and benefits. As long as Taiwan's not declaring independence, China's not going to use force. And in fact, I will say what has happened over the last 20 years or so is that China and Taiwan relations have actually improved to the point that there's hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, I think $250 billion of investment by Taiwan into China. There are direct flights back and forth. I was just going to say, and the, the chiefs of state have met. Yes, right. And if you compare the two remaining conflicts in East Asia, North and South Korea and China, Taiwan, one hasn't made any progress. And, you know, we're still staring at each other the same way we were in 1950. And that's the Korean Peninsula. There's no progress. The China-Taiwan relationship has vastly improved. And so I, I am not worried about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Of course, you know lots of people, and I do too, who said, 
Putin will never invade Ukraine. That's no way to court his cousins across the border. It would be insane. Yeah, oh, yeah, but I mean, the the point about China is that it, this isn't like, oh well, there might they have made explicit again and again and again, we will use force if Taiwan declares independence, and that's it, right? I mean, it's very the red line is explicit as to what's going to happen. And interestingly enough, China has been willing to forswear the use of force in resolving uh, maritime disputes in uh, the South China Seas. They say, let's resolve those peacefully, let's negotiate, let's come up with a code of conduct. And they explicitly do not forswear the use of force on Taiwan. So it's a much more explicit red line. Coming up, a look back in anguish and irony at American war slogans like shock and awe. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source in IR class with international relations specialists David Kang of USC, Emma Ashford of the Atlantic Council, and the historian Stephen Wertheim of the Carnegie Endowment. We're talking about lessons learned and surprises. Here would be my three. One, invasions don't work. The Norman invasion of England worked. The Normandy invasion of France worked, you could say. But since Vietnam, what invasion and occupation has not confronted insurgency and long, deadly, brutal, really pathetic wars? Second general point, sanctions do work. And they work very acutely and fast, as we've never seen before. Third general point, restraint seems to work. Favorite word of the Quincy Institute, but the whole idea of not plunging in with the force of weapons First. And Joe Biden seems to have understood that and practiced it from the beginning. Do these three thoughts have effects going forward? Well, if I could, let me, let me think about the first two lessons that you mentioned. Invasions don't work. They generally don't. And they've been less and less effective, I would say, over time, if you think on a scale of uh, a century or so. But we're not done with this war. We're only a few weeks into this war. Thank you. Right? And so um, it's not clear. If you take Vladimir Putin's objective to be preventing the alignment of Ukraine with foreign military powers, in particular NATO, it's far from clear that he can't achieve that goal. I would say it's pretty clear now that he won't achieve some of the grander and more grandiose aspirations that he announced to essentially change the regime in Kiev and do so quickly and without a costly occupation. That seems very unlikely. But we haven't seen the outcome uh, of this conflict. And with respect to sanctions, I would actually say, although it's been notable, the scale uh, and speed of the sanctions that the West imposed on Russia, so far, the record of sanctions in this conflict, as in so many other instances, is a record of failure. The threat of sanctions failed in their initial goal of deterring the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So far, they have succeeded, if you will, in causing immense economic pain throughout Russia, uh, and that will continue to, to sting as long as the sanctions remain. 
but they have not achieved, it's not even quite clear what the strategic objectives of sanctions are at this point. Is the West willing to lift sanctions or at least some of the sanctions in return for a ceasefire and an agreed upon settlement that the Ukrainian government would prefer? So far, not very clear. Or is the goal simply to weaken Russia and try to permanently isolate it to the extent that the West can? Stephen, if I could sort of disagree with you for, for just a second here. I mean, I I don't think that this war or or indeed a number of wars we've seen in recent years suggests that that invasions or that wars don't work. As you say, it depends very much on what the objective is and then in particular on how successful a state is in pursuing its, you know, objectives on the battlefield. So, you can make a very strong argument I think that the US war in Afghanistan was an utter failure, but you could also make an argument that it was a success in that it removed the Taliban which was our original goal. Um, Remove the Taliban for a while, <laughs> so to speak. Remove the Taliban as it was constituted in, in 2001 at the time of the, the 9-11 attacks, right? So we got rid of the government that supported al-Qaeda at the time of the 9-11 attacks, which was our goal. In this current war, I think we could also make the argument, right, Russia is doing very badly, at least compared to how many specialists expected them to do before the conflict. But the most likely outcome, I think, here is still a Russia that gets a chunk of what it was asking for at the negotiating table prior to the conflict. They're probably going to get some version of Ukrainian neutrality, a promise not to join NATO. They're probably going to get some territory, perhaps a Ukrainian acceptance of of Crimea as, as a part of Russia. So, you know, again... Putin may not achieve his most maximalist outcomes that he wants, but he is going to achieve something through conflict. And, and, you know, I think, again, that is the lesson that he has drawn from other recent wars. And that's the lesson that leaders in future will draw from Putin's war in Ukraine. Maybe it was a mistake, but he did get something out of it. David Kang. Yeah, I, I want to jump in. You know, one lesson that I think we overlook in this is that this is not a Mearsheimer great powers, you know, run amok, Right. I say this all the time with respect to East Asian countries that the smallest ones are the toughest ones, right? There's this well overused phrase from, and I hate to bring it up, Thucydides, right? About how uh, the Melian dialogue, the great do what they want and the weak suffer what they must. And I'm like, no, that is absolutely not the case. Look at what Ukraine is doing. They may ultimately lose, as Steve said, we don't know. But the idea that Russia was just going to stroll in and that Ukraine was just going to give up because on the, on the face of it, on the numbers, they were weaker, that is absolutely not the case. And I think that so much of this discussion that we've seen among uh, the eggheads, the IR people about it, I can't believe how much we're are debating Mirsham, oh, is he right or not, right? No, no, he's not, right? Maybe he's not right in, in Asia. In these things, right? Because – the small countries are the ones that are not giving up. North Korea isn't giving up to the United States. Vietnam, as we've referenced, did not give up when the United States put 500,000 troops there, right? So we may ultimately, you know, Putin may end up getting something. But one of the big lessons that I think that we as sort of IR scholars should take away is to pay a little more attention to uh, how much intensity, who cares more, who's willing to fight more, right? Because the Ukraine certainly didn't just say, oh, okay, you know, we can see we're going to lose, we're going to give up. And they're, they're going down swinging, right? I want to change the subject entirely. For you, Emma, you write about oil and war. It seems to me one of the great lessons of this whole thing is that the whole bloody universe is addicted to oil. 
all the stranger because we know that our habitat is dying of fossil fuel fumes. And here we are. The first consideration is, what do we do with Russian oil? How does it get there? Pipeline, ship. Let's get to know Venezuela again. It has oil. The environmental politics of recent decades seems to have lapsed entirely, and it's hard to imagine when it's going to regain its place. Shouldn't that be the headline? That we get closer and closer to the end of a habitable planet. You know, I think a lot of the, the urgency that we've seen in the conversations about energy are largely because of the political failures of the last few decades. You know, you go all the way back to the 1970s, right, and you've got Jimmy Carter wearing a sweater and talking about how Americans have to learn to conserve energy. Um, now, back then, we did not have the technology to be able to try and wean ourselves off of oil. Today, we are much closer to an, an energy environment where we, we can't get off fossil fuels entirely, but there are other options and we can start to do that. Unfortunately, you know, in the last couple of decades, we have not made significant strides in that direction or significant enough to wean us off of oil. And so, you know, I think the reason why we're seeing this rush back to conversations about gas and oil is that the foundation of our economy is still just heavily, heavily dependent on those fossil fuels. And so, you know, you, you say to some extent you're discouraged by this conversation. I'm, I'm a little discouraged by it, but I'm also quite encouraged that alongside it, we are seeing some more serious talk among Western countries about more renewable options, right? So the Germans, in the conversations the Europeans are having about Russian gas and oil, you know, they're talking about not shutting down some of their nuclear plants. They're talking about shifting more to renewables. And so I think there is a more nuanced conversation under the surface there, even if the sort of headline is the US is going running to Venezuela and Iran because tomorrow we might not have enough oil. So I think hopefully this will act as a shock in the long term and, and maybe we can, we can start to change things. That conversation is pretty far below the surface now when we're talking about a boom in fracking tearing up the United States to keep Germany warm in the winter if the trade with Russia is impossible. I find that incredible. It's a question of timelines. Germany cannot come off of Russian gas this spring. That's not feasible. By next winter, with fracking, we might be able to get them off Russian gas to some extent. And then if we want to talk about renewables, that's a five-year or 10-year time horizon, right? So this is all about timelines. And again, it's back to it's a political failure of imagination during the last decade or so that countries are not more prepared for these problems that, that we're seeing today. And let me just add on to this, that it's not Please. just an energy conversation, right? Because the conversations that we are having about Russia need to talk about other commodities as well. Russia is a supplier of precious metals and minerals, some of which right. are used in renewable technologies that are major agricultural exporters. So is Ukraine. The global economy is heading into a tailspin in part because cutting Russia out of global markets is so difficult. And energy is just the sort of the most noticeable tip of that iceberg. It's a very, very noticeable tip indeed. I mean, could you write an essay arguing that the war is about oil in some fashion? or these precious metals in all of our iPhones and so much technology? I don't think so. Um, so what, what the academic literature shows is that states don't really fight 
over oil. So states rarely conquer one another for oil. Um, but what does happen is that there are cases where states like Russia that have a lot of oil, that can kind of corrupt their institutions, that can reduce the efficacy of, of policymaking, that can bolster personalistic dictators. And those are all things that we know increase the risks of war. So oil-rich states are more likely to start wars. I actually teach a class on this. And one of the things I had my students do a few, a few weeks back was talk about, you know, why does oil and gas make Putin more likely to start this war? And in part, it is because it helps to insulate him from international backlash. And so, you know, over the long term, hopefully states will start to get off Russian oil a little more wary of this going forward. This is for you, David Kang. Is oil use, markets, prices, pipelines an issue with respect to China? How does all of that play in China? You know, there is another side to the China story, which is they're in many ways one of the leaders in renewables. I literally just read today in a, a climate change news that by 2030, they plan to have 450 gigawatts of solar and wind in the Gobi Desert, which is going to be twice as much as the total U.S. They're, that's going to be on top of what they're doing. This is where in some ways, like if the U.S. can get, I read that we have 10% of new cars are now electric. This is the move to the future. And as Emma said, I think it's a question of timelines on how soon we can actually get there. But there's been more movement, I think, than, than we are aware of. And the question is, as Steve said, is, you know, where's the political will to keep pushing forward? And we'll find out. Because <laughs> this is an opportunity, in a sense, this is another, this is an opportunity to really double down on renewables, which we all know we need to do. Will the U.S. public and the politicians do it? That's, that's a question that we'll find out the answer to. I want to turn a corner here and talk about the United States overall. The New York Times over the weekend was a blizzard of slogans in a high wind. The pivot of Asia is now the pivot back to a united Europe. The U.S. is the captain again of the free world, of the West. The war on terror is over. Benjamin Rhodes, late of the Obama White House, says we've finally been handed the noble purpose that eluded the Obama team, we're in sight of the moral high ground again. The indispensable nation is back. The climate crisis can wait. All this kind of cheerleading and reassurance, how much of it is true? Steve Wertheim, you're a student of the indispensable America from 1940. Where are we here? There's certainly important moral attributes to this story. But uh, this is really not about the West's morality. Right? This is about Ukraine standing up for itself. And those are different things. And in fact, I'm a little bit worried that there will be a temptation to try to bleed Russia further, even if, it, even if we get to the point where the Zelensky government of Ukraine actually thinks it's best for Ukraine to reach some kind of uh, legitimate settlement to the war. Steve, if it were about morality, we'd have to be looking back at our own war on Iraq I often wonder if Iraqis had had cell phones and were sh firing YouTube horror pictures from our bombardment, our incredibly asymmetrical war on Iraq, we could barely have sustained that war. What reminders do we need of that, of that experience? Afghanistan, too. I think we saw it from our own perspective, and that's the problem. It wasn't that we couldn't have seen the war in Iraq from a different perspective. And I think many other people around the world 
when they saw U.S. forces gathering to invade Iraq, felt similarly to how we view Russia massing its forces around Ukraine and undertaking an illegal and aggressive invasion. We celebrated shock and awe of all things. That's right. You know, when we did that, there weren't a whole lot of Americans who thought, even those who realized the war was a mistake, who thought, geez, we should, the American people should be cut out of the global economy. We should be punished. And doing that will bring about some kind of better state of affairs. It might even lead us to oust our, our leader. So I am a bit concerned about what the effect will be of these very large-scale sanctions within Russia as we look forward, uh, both in the very short term and over the long term. I'd like you all to comment on an odd quirk in this war, that the President of the United States is the chief news bringer and commentator on the whole story. He had remarkable intelligence beforehand that indeed Putin was going to invade, and Zelensky's reassurances were misinformed, he has also been explaining a theory of restraint all along. What do we make of that? In certain ways, he puts the blob to shame in terms of explaining what we're in it for, what we must do. You know, I I actually do think the Biden administration's communications strategy throughout this crisis has been incredibly effective. I mean, more so, far more effective than the overall strategy, the overall U.S. response. But the communications part of it has been extremely effective. You know, the part where it comes to revealing Russian troop buildup and movements, saying we have intelligence, the Russians are going to go in, you know, a very effective response to all the things that we've heard over the last couple of decades about Russian gray zone warfare and misinformation and and all of these things, it turns out shining a bright light on that made it extremely clear when the war started that Russia was definitely the aggressor in this case. And so that was extremely effective. You know, and then I think, I think, as you say, the president has been very clear over and over and over in this process that the US is not going to defend Ukraine but we will defend NATO countries. And so he has drawn that line very clearly. Um, you know, m- much as, as Dave said earlier in this, this conversation about the Chinese drawing a very clear red line on, on Taiwan, you know, the US has drawn an extremely clear red line here on, on NATO states. The problem is, I, I do think that when it comes to the broader strategy in which that communications piece is embedded, that, that the US response has been less effective. So it's, it's one thing to, you know, make Russia um, visibly the aggressor in this conflict, to build up international support for sanctions and countermeasures. But the fact is that neither our diplomatic overtures to Russia nor the sanctions that we threatened to impose deterred Russia from from this invasion. And I, I, you know, I think we will find out in 30 years from the historians whether there really was an off-ramp here that could have prevented conflict. But my, my inclination now is to say that there were perhaps places where US willingness to talk about things like NATO expansion might have yielded a better result. And so I think, you know, the communications part has been very innovative, but ultimately it did fail to deter this conflict. And this conflict is 
the fault of Russia, clearly, but also in part the legacy of failures of US policy over the last 30 years in Europe. The fact that you can go back to 1991 and you can see people like George Kennan or Brent Scowcroft effectively predicting that something like this would eventually happen, that says to me that we didn't do enough to try to prevent it. Coming up, realism in war theory and realities that surface in real warfare. This is Open Source. Realism is the label on a school of thought in policymaking. It puts state power and national interests at the center of international relations, ahead of globalism, say, or moral idealism. The Chicago scholar John Mearsheimer, with 20 million recent viewings of just one of his lectures on YouTube, is the most famous teacher of realism in theory and practice. I put the question of realism and reality to David Kang, IR professor at USC. David, come back to this general theme of great power politics. I admire John Mearsheimer so much, and yet you'd have to say the so-called realism of that school missed the boat on the human mystery under fire. Not only Zelensky whose performance has, and it is a performance, but it's incredible, but also the Ukrainian people. Who knew that they could and did mount a real volunteer offensive? They would stop that Russian army almost in its tracks and that they would hold on, that they would build a world cause for their democracy. Does realism, so-called, account for these human intangibles, deep mysteries, really? No, I mean, it's a structural theory. I mean, many, many people who are restrainers or whatever count themselves as realists, and I don't, precisely because I put a lot more emphasis on the ideas and the values and the norms and the beliefs of various peoples and what they care about. And what you see here is clearly the Ukrainian people care about it way more than we think. And the Russian military cares about it way less. And this is what we failed to understand in Vietnam as well, that like Vietnam was, you know, those people were fighting an independence war and were willing to keep fighting and dying well past the point that the United States could justify sending troops over there. And so to ignore this, I think, misses much of what's motivating. And as, as I think Steve pointed out, you know, much of the way Putin is behaving isn't necessarily, quote, structural or great power. It's about his values or his fears or his motivations. And I think we miss that at our own peril around the world. I think we miss that. And that's a shame. Hmm. I just like to add to that. Um, when I think about how analysts understood the threat that Russia posed in the post-Cold War era and in the years leading up to this moment. It seems to me that quite a few realists were generally correct in saying that Russia posed a significant threat in the post-Soviet space to countries like Ukraine. But they also emphasized that Russia did not pose such a tremendous threat in conventional terms to the United States and lacked the capability to overrun Europe militarily. And if I look at all the evidence we've now seen over the past several weeks, that basic threat assessment seems quite correct to me. Steve, you mentioned NATO and Europe. I'd love others to comment too. The line is that NATO is back, strong, united. Until this moment, 
for a decade or more, Europe has seemed distracted, divided, turning inward, especially in Brexit, but also culturally, personally. What does it matter that Europe is claiming now or is claimed to be a big deal again? I do think for the first time in decades, we are seeing a conversation play out in Europe about a Europe that could potentially build up its military capabilities, guided by the US and bolstered by it rather than entirely dominated by it. I mean, and the the announcements that we've seen from Germany just in the past three weeks have been earth shattering from the point of view of of European defence in in a way that we just would not have expected before this conflict started. I would be hesitant to attribute all of this to the current conflict, but I do think going forward, we are going to see a European NATO that is at least going to take the notion of security a little more seriously. I think the challenge for US policymakers is going to be to guide that in a productive direction rather than just rushing in to save the day. Now, we've sent a number of troops um, to Europe over the last few weeks. That's relatively justifiable given the current situation. But we need a plan to ensure that that isn't the long-term solution. We need a plan to ensure that this crisis leads to Europe being a more equal partner inside NATO. Because the alternative, I think, for America is sort of a strategic bankruptcy of we can't focus on China and on Europe and on everything else. You know, this is not feasible. So, you know, we really do need to enable the Europeans to step up here. Before we're done, I'd love to hear what each of you have learned about the people you admire in the thinking and the doing around this war. Who's emerging as the people to follow in the future? Zelensky clearly is a great figure emerging, a kind of Joan of Arc. They'll talk about him forever. Who else that we haven't noticed do you admire? I would say that we should be paying a lot more attention to the Russian intellectual class. You've got to remind us what they're saying. Well, so so what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is a Russian intelligentsia that was appalled, shocked, surprised by this invasion. Um, Even Mm. folks who are foreign policy specialists who often advise the Kremlin were left out of the loop on this and are appalled. Mm. You know, we have seen these spontaneous protests in Russia over the last few weeks in a situation where Russians are genuinely putting themselves and their families in physical danger, in harm's way, to protest this war. We've seen folks like, you know, the head of the Russian Academy of Sciences coming out and saying, I don't support this war. I I think we should get out of it. And these come with serious risks to these people to say these things publicly. And so while we are putting these sanctions on Russia, we do have to be aware of the Russians living under the regime in the Kremlin who don't want this. And we need to be sure that what we're doing is not closing the political space for them to influence their own government. I I don't think there's any prospect for like a large-scale revolution here, some of the more sort of apocalyptic scenarios. But we need to make sure that those elites in Russia still have the space to influence policymaking and to push Russia back in a more moderate direction. Because if we don't do that, then I think the, the results could be quite dire. Fascinating, and I want to read more of those people. I'm surprised to discover that Masha Gessen, who in 
absolute opposition to Putin can get into Russia, talk to friends, and come back and tell the world about it, even in that lockdown state. It's risky, and and this is part of why so many Western companies are getting out of Russia right now. Our sanctions have been extreme. Hopefully they will impact the Kremlin's decision-making calculus. But at the same time, what we are seeing is a Russia that is almost disappearing back behind an iron curtain, right? We do not want those people-to-people contacts to be cut off. That leaves us all in a much more dangerous world. I'm just catching up with a character named Alexander Dugin, a kind of relentless warrior, Russia expert, and a voice of real incitement to violence and brutal victory in Putin's head. What do we know about Alexander Dugin? So Dugin has been floating around for years. He's often cited as being a core influence on Putin's thinking. I think it might be more accurate to say that they are fellow travelers in an ideological sense, right? So Dugin is an extreme Russian nationalist, wants to see Russia regain many of the territories it lost at the collapse of not just the Soviet Union, but the Russian Empire, very anti-Western, very pro-Russia as a Eurasian power. These are long-running currents in Russian foreign policy debate. But Dugin is extreme, as you say, and and very supportive of violence. And, you know, my my feeling is that Dugan is still pretty marginal, um, but that the the lines that he is espousing have more moderate versions inside the Kremlin. And so these are trends in Russian foreign policy making we do need to be aware of, even if I I don't necessarily think Dugan himself is, is really calling the shots here. Stephen Wertheim, bring it home with the thinkers and doers that you're admiring, noticing, surprised by, cheering on. Chris, I'm going to go back to your proposal of Ukrainian President Zelensky. Just weeks ago, I was actually in Munich when Zelensky came to give a speech. This is on the eve of the invasion. There were people there who wondered, is he coming to escape his own country? Hmm. And it turns out he sure wasn't. He's not just important for the way in which he has changed the course of the war so far. He's also going to be very important to the outcome. Zelensky has the credibility and the power to do a number of things. Please. Vladimir Putin's out from this war is to make a deal with Zelensky, something that Zelensky has hinted he's willing to do. For example, by accepting a neutral status for Ukraine. And I hope that somebody in the Kremlin actually realizes that. In addition to that, it may be only Zelensky who can say to the West, Mm. now in order to make this deal, which is in the interest of Ukraine, to spare further bloodshed, we need the West to lift some of the most severe sanctions on Russia, such as the sanctions on Russia's central bank. That would bring about a much better world where we can have the kinds of people-to-people contacts between Russia and the West that Emma was discussing. We can stitch together at least some of the relationships that now look like they may be sundered apart for many decades. So a lot of this now rests on one remarkable person, Zelensky. See, that's a very striking statement you just made. We were drawn to the neutralization idea when Anatole Levin started writing about it six or eight weeks ago. It seemed perfectly logical, but it turned out 
not to appeal to Ukrainians and their hopes. It didn't appeal much to American policy people or American journalists. The idea was buried, and yet it had worked wonderfully in Austria in the Cold War and in Finland with the American government and American opinion sign on after all of this brutality and heroics to a neutral Ukraine. I think it wouldn't be easy, but it would be possible. The legitimate Ukrainian government would have to support this kind of deal. Prior to Putin's invasion, the Ukrainian government did not support neutrality. And in fact, it was trying to bring about a more concrete commitment from the West that it would go to war in defense of Ukraine, for example, by admitting Ukraine into NATO. I do fear that conditions are not ripe yet uh, for a peace settlement, so it may take uh, quite a while longer. Not ripe because the war isn't decided, because feelings have been so torn up in the process, or what? That's part of it. Each side has to come to the conclusion that they can't really gain much more through further fighting. Is that where Russia is yet? Possibly, but I doubt it. Is that where Ukraine is? Maybe a little more likely, given what Zelensky has suggested in recent days. But it absolutely should be tested through diplomacy, and I think that's something that the United States government should be a part of. David Kang, what can China do as a mediator in this awful situation? I would caution against thinking that China can come in and solve the conflict any more than it can in, like, North Korea. China right now is trying to walk a very, very narrow line, which I'm not sure it can, between condemning the violence and calling for peace and these very bland statements and then actively supporting Russia. There are reports that Russia has asked for Chinese military aid. I would be very surprised if China did that. But China's trying to walk this middle ground, and maybe they can be a mediator, but that would require both Ukraine and Russia to be ready to do something. And as I would go with Steve, I don't see it right now, right? I don't see what China can do right now to stop Putin any more than anybody else can do. And I would point out, there are a number of countries. India has not joined in the sanctions. Indonesia didn't. Vietnam didn't. Across much of the global south, these countries have not joined in taking sides. I don't think that it's like China's all by itself. It's actually a much more complicated issue. We've, many of these countries are viewing it as a Western or even a, you know, a Slavic type of issue, and they don't want to get involved. Emma Ashford, take a guess before we're done on a plausible end of this nightmare. So I generally agree with Stephen that I don't think we're quite there yet. But I, I do think the most plausible scenario right now is some kind of negotiated settlement. The Ukrainians have come much closer to the Russian position on neutrality. They have not come closer on the question of the disputed territories, Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk in the east of the country. That's going to be a big sticking issue. But the Russians have equally come somewhat closer to the Ukrainian position. We've heard a lot of quiet words about, you know, the Russians don't seem to be seeking regime change anymore, or they may not be demanding it as part of this deal. So I do think the contours of a deal that are there for a Ukrainian neutral state that has limited military cooperation with NATO um, and doesn't include perhaps Crimea, maybe some other territories. I think, you know, in a couple of weeks, 
that may be where we end up. There are other scenarios on the table here that are far less good, right? So one is that the Russian army collapses, the Russian state collapses. I think it's extremely unlikely, but it is an option at this point in a way it wasn't a few weeks ago. And then I think the other option, which is is also unlikely but possible, is that this escalates into a broader conflict between Russia and the United States and NATO. And I think there are far too many places where there is the serious risk of escalation right now. Everything from the arms that we're funneling into Ukraine, the sanctions and the economic impact that they're having on Russia, which is unprecedented in the modern era. These are all places where we could see either escalation or accidental attacks that turn into something bigger. So again, I'm hopeful that negotiated settlement is where we're headed for, but we need to be aware that there are ways where this could get worse and they are certainly plausible. Steve Wertheim, last word. Oh, Emma's absolutely correct. And I think that just underscores how desirable it would be if the parties are willing to actually engage in a peace settlement. And it's important that we, as Americans and Europeans, are willing to be part of that settlement and spare further bloodshed if that is what the Ukrainian government wants to do and if Russia is willing to make peace. Steve Wertheim, Emma Ashford, David Kang, fresh eyes, fresh voices, all of you. Thank you so much for joining us, for the work you do, and for adding to our insight. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Stephen Wertheim is an historian at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Emma Ashford is a fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. David Kang teaches international relations at the University of Southern California. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our series in collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. David Kang is a fellow with the Quincy Institute. You can find his debate with John Mearsheimer about U.S. policy toward China at quincyinst.org. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, an energetic collective of independent, humanistic podcasts. This week, check out the show Soonish from technology journalist Wade Rausch. His recent miniseries, The Persistent Innovators, gets under the hoods of big companies like Apple, Disney, Lego, and Novartis. Find all four episodes at soonishpodcast.org. And check out the full Hub & Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath, Adam Coleman, and George Hicks, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source.